everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book five of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, part three, The Wolves. Chapters 1 through 4. Let's start the show. Susanna's revelation about her pregnancy and the subsequent conversation about it happens off stage between the last part and this section, The Wolves. The plate throwing women put on a show for Roland that gives him hope for the upcoming battle. Using the magic of Black 13, Eddie goes back to New York City to make a deal with Calvin Tower and scare the shit out of Jack Andalini. Jake has his own adventure as he discovers how the wolves know where the children always are. The Cotet palavers about their next steps, and Father Callahan takes his own trip back to New York City. While waiting for Father Callahan to return, Roland makes his own discovery. Jay, there's a lot that happens in this section, and there's not one goddamn wolf. Where are the wolves that we were promised? (laughs) I want wolves. I want to see snouts and whiskers and tails, and maybe a couple of paws. This section is called The Wolves. We read four chapters, not a single wolf. I'm just saying. But that does bring us to something, Jay, which is Stephen King's writing style in this book. I feel like I'm being cheated in some way, that there's a lot that Stephen King is hiding from us, the reader, that the characters in the book know about. And this is creating what I think is an artificial tension in some way. So, you know, we get this build up right at the end of the last section about Susanna's pregnancy and how she knows about it and how they're all going to talk about it as a quartet. And then that happens off stage. We don't get to hear that conversation. Mm-hmm. There's the grand pair's 19 words that he's whispered to Eddie, and Eddie is shared with Roland. And We don't understand what those are, but they're very significant and everyone understands their significance, but we're not told what that is. At the end of this section, Roland finds a book and he knows what the book is and what's in it and how this means something. Yep. And we're left wondering, what is in that book? What book is this? Should I know what this is? And the characters also know about the gray horses. Wait, are they gray horses? I think they're gray, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, they're gray horses. The gray horses. And Eddie and Roland all of a sudden understand the significance of those gray horses. Yeah. And we don't get any of that. Like, why is King hiding this from us? I think that there's enough tension in this book without it. That Why do we need this? Well, like I, what I said before, it's artificial tension. Yeah, and we know we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages of evidence that Stephen King has the skills to write a book with tension and drama and not keep us in this type of suspense. This seems like something a much less experienced writer might do. Mm. It has to be deliberate. Maybe he's trying something. Maybe he's experimenting with something. But I agree with you. It feels like he's cheating somehow. He's taking a shortcut to dramatic tension rather than constructing it organically. I kind of feel like Annie Wilkes. And if I had Stephen King in my clutches, I would just yell at him, you can't 
cheat in the cock-a-doody writing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, King is obviously aware of what happens when writers cheat like this. He should not be so brazen in doing it himself. You know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about spoiler culture and how things can be ruined for people and how I don't want to be spoiled. And it's my thought that a good artist in whatever medium, whether that's writing or televisions or movies, that even when you know what's going to happen, it's really the journey there that's the thrilling part. In Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan was very clear that when he wrote the logline for that show, that it was going to be a teacher's descent from Mr. Chips to to Scarface. I mean, he was very clear about that, that that was what was going to happen. And knowing that, you sort of know what's going to happen, right? It's not going to end well for Walt. And the title of the show is Breaking Bad. So we, it's right there in the title. But to your point, our enjoyment of that show was watching, was going on that journey with Walter White and seeing him break bad and break bad and continue to break bad over and over again and get worse and worse, become ultimately the Scarface type character. I've read The Stand four, five, six times in my lifetime. And even from the very first time I read it, I wasn't expecting Randall Flagg to walk away with the victory at the end and be like, oh yeah, he wiped out all those good doers in uh, in Colorado. Like that was easy. Like, you know, at the end, like it's going to end up on a high note and that good is ultimately going to prevail over evil and take a stand. But the interesting part is how do we get there? And I don't think at the end of this book that the wolves of the Kala are going to wipe out the entire town and Roland's quest for the Dark Tower is going to end here. I mean, I know there's two more books, but even not knowing that, I wouldn't have that expectation. So I feel like you said King's cheating here in some ways, and I wish he would not be so brazen in his hiding of information from us when he has not done that very often prior to this book. He's been very upfront and straight with the reader. In fact, he often undercuts his plot lines. We've talked about that. Exactly. And he has done that a few times in this book too, but he has found some way to somehow juggle undercutting plot lines and hiding things that don't need to be hidden to the point where it just seems frustrating. And I think that's the part that you and I are struggling with. It's okay to withhold information, but the way that it's happening here, it's frustrating. And the frustration sort of seeps into my ability to enjoy the story as it unfolds. Because I know I'm just, at some point, I'm going to turn the page and there's going to be that piece of information finally. And I'm just going to have spent all that time waiting for it. Yes. And so a little bit of behind the curtain here. I've been very good, Jay, about reading up to when we record and not reading any further. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is just so that I can remain fresh. But it's been a little bit frustrating for me as a reader because, as you and I have talked about, I'm a very fast reader. And it's rare that I would take as long to read a Stephen King book as we're taking now over the course of a couple months. You know, I used to get Stephen King books and read them in one sitting or stay up till two in the morning and finish them. And Obviously, I, do, I don't do that anymore, but I would never take weeks and weeks and weeks to finish a Stephen King book. So I will admit, when I got to the end of this section a week ago, prior to us talking about it and recording it, 
I was so frustrated about what book did Roland find that I did have to go up and look look at it online just so that <laughs> I could get that at least off. Like I still ha- I still don't know what Grandpa's nineteen words are, and I still don't know what the nineteen horses are or the the gray horses are. The but nineteen gray horses. The nineteen gray horses. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if there's nineteen gray horses. But I just couldn't bear to not know what was in the book, and I know it's probably only a few pages in, but I had to figure that out. So I did cheat a little bit. Don't hate me, dear listeners. So you found the book with the church on the cover and the setting sun that looks exactly like the church in, that Callahan had built in Colobrin Sturgis? The spoilers. Well, it's the, it's the information that Roland tells us. Yes. So, Jay, the other thing that's a little bit frustrating about this whole thing, and as we transition into our next topic, is that we complained a lot about... Susanna not being given her fair share of the action in these books. And at the end of the last section, when they make a specific point of saying, and then Susanna spoke, and it was as if we'd never noticed her before. Yep. They practically forgot about her. And I was like, hey, this is great. We're now going to get Susanna. They've they've practically forgotten about her, but now she's spoken up, and now she's going to tell her story, and we're going to have a discussion. And then we've read four chapters of this next section. And guess which main character has hardly given any shine upon her at all? And that is Susanna. We get all of the characters get some major action here. Yeah, they get their own stories. Yeah, they... Jake gets this whole finding this special substation with all this information. Eddie gets to go back to New York City and have this great interaction with Calvin Tower and this awesome standing up to Jack Andalini. Callahan gets his own return to New York City after dying the last time he was in that world, and now he gets to go back to New York City and revisit that city. And even Roland gets to to be a part of all that through through these other things. And Susanna gets to throw a couple plates, and we don't even see it through her eyes. We see it through Eddie's eyes and Roland's eyes, and she doesn't even get to win the plate-throwing contest. She has to throw it on purpose. Just to throw the throwing contest. Throw the eh? throwing contest, exactly. What the heck, Jay? Does Stephen King not like this character? I don't know. Maybe he's going to make it up to us by focusing on her for an entire book. Huh. I wonder which book will that be? Book seven, The Dark Tower? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. But it's frustrating. I mean, I was very much excited about Susanna and the fact that we spent time talking about it and then Stephen King even has his character say oh they had forgotten about her Mm -hmm. and then Stephen King promptly forgets about her I mean is this the tension that he's undercutting or is he hiding something from us here I don't know but we're going to expand on this a little bit in a moment about how Eddie is I, I think in a lot of ways Eddie has has become fully realized as a gunslinger but in some ways that makes Eddie the least interesting character in the book at this point. Hmm. Roland, I think, will always have a really important part in any part of the Dark Tower story, and he will, in some way, be the most interesting character. Because every page you turn, there's a chance to learn something new about his background, some new ability that you didn't know he had, like dancing the Kamala dance or something. Right. right? The, Roland is infinitely interesting jake is still growing up he's he's a young man 
or he's a boy and he's becoming a young man and he's got a lot of road ahead of him of development and growth and things like that. There's a lot left to mine in Jake's story. Mm. And I think that Susanna slash Odetta slash Detta slash Mia, the now pregnant Mia and her chap and all of the problems that are just impending with that. There's a lot going on there and there's so much that could be done with that. So I think Susanna is so interesting. And that's why I think you and I are especially frustrated by the fact that we're not spending any time with her. But that leaves Eddie. Eddie has kind of like maybe completed his arc. He is a gunslinger now. Mm. And aside from just being the badass gunslinger that he's become, I don't know, is there a lot more for him to just to just make him interesting? Except to watch him be cool, which is fun. And hearing him tell jokes and crack wise, and I'll never get tired of Eddie. I just don't know if Eddie is as interesting as the other members of the quartet. So maybe that's why a lack of time on Susanna seems all the more, all the more of a letdown. Yeah, a missed opportunity almost. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by her as a character. I want to spend some time with her. Yeah. Hear her thoughts, at least give her, when the few times she's on the page, put us in her mind. Let us hear her thoughts. Let us see her reaction to things. We get some of that, but there's a that extended scene with the plate throwing contest, like you mentioned. It's not from her perspective. She's just one of the characters yeah. in the scene. I mean, this isn't like George R. R. Martin, where he has very structured points of view chapters that that he doesn't vary from one chapter to throughout the chapter. And the feeling that Susanna must have, knowing that she's about to be a mother, and yet the person that she would assume to be the father is not the father, and then the concern of what is she carrying, and what's mm-hmm. that going to mean, and what's it going to be? You know, we are already concerned about what's it going to mean for her to be a mother in this strange land, carrying a normal baby, um, but then to have a potential whatever this chap is going to be growing in her, in addition to the fact that her disassociative identity disorder has reappeared and that there's all these other pieces to it. I mean, there's got to be so much running through her mind on a regular basis, whereas it's pretty clear what's running through Eddie and Jake's mind. When are the wolves coming? When are the wolves coming? When are the wolves Mm -hmm. coming? Roland has a more global perspective, but still, he, he seems to be worrying about one problem at a time, which is what Roland does, which is worry about what's in front of him and let Ka take its course. And the one thing that he can control right now is how do we plan for the wolves? Right. So there's this wild card that no one's thinking about except Susanna, but we don't, we don't get to see Susanna thinking about it. I mean, like you said, we've got a whole book called Song of Susanna. So hopefully our, uh, our wishes will finally be granted six books in. Yeah. All right. So as you mentioned, I mean, Eddie is all grown up here, right? Like, yeah. Especially when he gets to New York City, we see him act as if how a gunslinger would act. He he mm-hmm. has a mission when he goes to New York City and he's able to carry it out how it needs to be carried out. Yeah, I think King writes him in those moments like he would have written Roland when Roland was in his absolute prime. Not just before he was maimed and lost the fingers, but when he was at his age basically. Yeah. Physically, at his absolute best, had both guns, everything. That's where Roland would have been. So 
again, it's like, in a way, Eddie has caught up to where Roland was when Roland was at his best. I don't know that Eddie will ever be, like, I don't think King will ever let anyone besides Roland be as fast of a draw as Roland, as accurate of a shooter as Roland, or as dogged and stubborn and willing to sacrifice the people closest to him to achieve his ends. I don't think Eddie has that in him. There's a little bit of that. We've talked about how Eddie has said, yeah, I've already set my priorities and the tower and the rose are at the top. He said that, but he hasn't shown it. Yeah. Roland has shown it. Roland Roland has let Jake die. Roland has murdered entire towns. Roland has killed his own mother. Uh, While that last one wasn't exactly his choice, it was still, he sees it as in service of his his mission, his obsession. Eddie has walked or has talked the talk, but he has yet to walk the walk. So until he lets Susanna or Jake die, we can't know that that is what he'll do. Right. But to your point, I mean, the way that King even describes Eddie in these scenes, he's got these sharp eyes. When he first gets to the bookstore, he looks in and then he looks in a second time because he needs to look with a different set of eyes, a gunslinger's eyes. Yeah. He needs to truly see his surrounding. Yeah. And the fact that Calvin Tower is deathly afraid of him, even after- He quite obviously saved his life. Right. He's still afraid of him and, and doesn't know what side he's on. And Andalini's obviously afraid of him. And even Callahan, when he gets back and Eddie's telling the story- Callahan says, well, you wouldn't have gone to the other boroughs and killed his family and children, would you have? And Eddie's like, well, let's just say I wouldn't have, Father, and leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah. He looks up at the sky for a moment with like this kind of lopsided grin and says, let's just say I wouldn't have, okay? And move on, yes. Yeah. Eddie's also ready for the battle with the wolves. In fact, he's craving it to some extent like he wants that deadline to get here so that he can be in the battle because he's yet to be in a huge battle like this he's had a couple of gunfights but they've been very limited very small bore whereas this is going to be an actual gunfight and even though he doesn't know the outcome he still wants to be there yeah i i think he senses the fact that he is that he is truly a gunslinger now and he wants to flex that new muscle. I felt like when he was in Lud, he was being more reactionary than proactive in a lot of ways. His skills and his training and his personality got him through. But I think that it was more of like putting out fires rather than making a plan and sticking to it. Yes. Now it's the other way around. He's ready for whatever comes at him. And he wants to maybe test himself, prove to himself that the way he feels is is correct. And as you were saying earlier about spoilers and how we expect plots to end, you know, like I think Eddie has almost the confidence of a character in a book that his first trial by combat is not going to end in a bad way. He's right. going to be a successful warrior. And there's no better sense of the fact that he's progressed as a gunslinger in the fact that he has completely renounced New York. When he returns via the doorway to New York, the smells, the noise, just the whole city itself grates on him. And he doesn't like the pollution. He doesn't like anything about it anymore. All those things that he, if not enjoyed, at least knew, hey, this is my city. 
he now just can't wait to get back to to the call and where the air is fresh and he he has space and there's people around and like that's his world now and New York City is no longer that. Hmm. Reminds me of that Jim Croce song. <laughs> Again? And you made a really cool realization when Eddie has broken into Calvin Tower's store and he grabs a book and tears a bit off of it to stop the door from swinging open again behind him. What was the thing that you found? It was like a Dr. Seuss book. He opens up the door to the the bookstore and he's broken the lock. So he needs to find a way to jam the door shut so that it doesn't make any noise and no one comes in. And so he takes the How the Grinch Stole Christmas book and he tears out the last few pages and folds them up and jams them into the door. And what's interesting about that, and readers correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the Grinch story ends with the Grinch's heart getting two sizes larger that day. His heart actually grows Mm -hmm. and he becomes more empathetic and more understanding and loving of the, the who's in Whoville. And Eddie here has torn those book those parts out, and I saw that as him, his heart being torn away in some ways, and his heart, if if you will, in smalling and smallinging, the opposite of embiggening. His heart has been ensmalled, and it's his Eddie's heart has been ensmalled. It's it's shrunk two sizes that day. He's gotten harder. He's gotten more cold, cold, more not caring about his fellow man. And he you get that sense not only with his reaction with Andalini, which you can understand. Andalini's been this horrible bully who's picked on Eddie before in his previous life. But he doesn't even like Calvin Tower, the man he's sent to save. And he's like, I'm glad this person's not part of our content. I can't even imagine him, me sharing any sort of friendship with him. Like he just becomes a colder, meaner person. Um, and I wonder if King was doing that intentionally by tearing out the pages of the Grinch book where that happens. I think even if King hadn't done that intentionally, I think it's a great accidental thing. But I don't think King does many things like this accidentally. No. I've read enough Dr. Seuss books to my kids to know all the all the t- twists and turns of the Grinch and the Cat in the Hat and, and the Horton books. So And the Who's in Whoville. And the Who's in Whoville. Quick side note. Speaking of King's apparently godlike prowess as an author, we're told by Eddie that Calvin Tower is an asshole. Yes. I don't think Calvin Tower is an asshole, based on what I've experienced. When we first met him, when Jake met him the first time on his way to basically crossing over through through the doorway, Calvin Tower seemed like a great guy. He was like Stephen King's kind of private bookstore seller, obsessed with the rare copies, knew a lot about a lot of things, had a few friends in the New York area, didn't spend a lot of time making money, mostly just hung out in his shop for the two customers a week that came in. To me, that doesn't read as a bad person or an annoying personality. He's not a successful businessman. King didn't write him in a way that came across as someone who I would not like to be around. Right. But who would offend me on a personal level? And each time we met him, we saw that he wasn't necessarily heroic or brave or the gunslinger in in waiting type like Callahan is. 
but he didn't come across as a lousy person. But Eddie talks to him and he's scared and he doesn't know what to do. And he's, he, despite all the danger he's in, Tower doesn't really want to accept it. And I think that's kind of a natural thing for somebody not experienced in t- with this kind of danger. Just like, I'm just going to pretend it's not real. Right. And I'm going to go about my life as in that way. If I pretend hard enough, the danger's gone. The, my problems are, have gone away. That all just seems natural and normal. So it, it takes Eddie telling us rather than King showing us that Calvin Tower is maybe not such a great dude and hardly worth protecting, let alone any of the other nonsense they're going through. But they have to do it. They have to deal with him because they have to protect the Rose right, and all that. So I don't know what we gain by making Calvin Tower unlikable. And I don't think King was successful at portraying him as unlikable. Yeah, I think to your point, I think a lot of it is just Eddie's. It's Eddie's view into Calvin Tower mm. more than it is Calvin Tower himself, because as you said, I think he's acting totally normal like a human might. And he's acting totally normal as somebody who's been relatively well off his entire life and living in Manhattan and running a, you know, a bookstore that's not necessarily succeeding, but enough to get by and live your life. I mean, yeah. The idea here that Eddie has changed into a gunslinger and he's looking down on people who have not made that change. I think that that's a big part of it is that Eddie just doesn't, it's hard for him to conceptualize the type of person who's not that gunslinger anymore because his day-to-day life now is Roland and Suzanne and Jake who are all on their way to being full gunslingers. So, Yeah, I, I guess part of the problem could be Eddie's perception of him in that frustration, but he's also, yeah, I guess part of it falls on Eddie's shoulders there. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, Calvin does seem portrayed differently than he was in previous books. I will allow that. I mean, even in the this book, when we hear Callahan's story. And to be fair, that's what, four years down the line? So maybe this interaction with Eddie has had an effect on him and he becomes a little bit braver. Even in there, in that scene, he's not quite as brave as a normal gunslinger would be, but he does show guts. And... Mm-hmm. Well, back from my uh, my side trip there, we were talking about how Eddie is all grown up as a gunslinger, but how do you feel about Susanna's development as a gunslinger, Jake's development as a gunslinger? Because they are on the same journey, they they've been trained by the same by the same uh, Roland. Well, I guess Jake spent a little less time. Jake spent non continuous time. Yes, with Roland. But you get the sense that Susanna got some very quality training from Roland. There's about what a month from when they're recovering on the beach, where she and Eddie are just training. Like they're yeah. They're learning to shoot. They're learning to see with their eye. They're learning what the traits of a gunslinger are. Jake doesn't, there just hasn't been the time to give Jake that type of training, that Mm -hmm. one-on-one gunslinger boot camp, if you will. In Wizard and Glass, Roland is the only of his quartet who go there who is truly a gunslinger. He's the only one who's had a trial Mm. and passed. But Cuthbert and Elaine haven't done that. So they are still novice gunslingers or 
I'm not sure if there's a term for that, but their experiences in mages becomes their trial. Yes. I think that when they return to Gilead, they are considered fully formed gunslingers. There seems to be some tradition or structure to that process where you can go through a stylized trial like Roland does, or you can go through an actual trial by combat, and if you survive it, you're now a gunslinger. Yes. And I think that Ludd was Susanna and Eddie's equivalent to that. That was their trial by combat. They got through some pretty dark stuff and killed a bunch of people and survived the day. And now that's why they are gunslingers. But Jake didn't have that opportunity. He wasn't even close to being ready to handle that on his own. But he was also fighting for his life in a different way. And he ultimately needed to be rescued. Mm -hmm. He couldn't have survived without help. So he hasn't had a proper trial. Maybe that's going to happen in this book with the wolves. Maybe. But we haven't gotten there yet with Jake. No. So... It was close to happening when he was at uh, the Dogen. Mm-hmm. I, you almost got the sense that if he had made a slight noise differently or Andy or uh, Mr. Slightman looked over his shoulder in a certain way that he might have had to slap that leather, but uh, yeah. it did not come to that. He was ready to do it. He was ready to do it. Now, Susanna, it's interesting that she is a gunslinger, and yet they're taking the guns out of her hands and filling it with plates. So she might just mm -hmm. be a plate slinger moving forward. Yeah, but when she makes that comment to Roland, like, I think I might give up the guns. Stick with these plates here. He's simultaneously surprised and aghast. <laughs> like, oh, sacrilege. How could you say such a thing about the guns, the precious guns? There's something to Jake's development here where Jake just continues to be concerned about the impending betrayal of his friend, Benny Slate. Mm. And he knows what's coming. He's such a smart kid. He's, he's always seeing 10 steps ahead of, of the game. And he knows that even in the best case scenario where everybody gets through this alive, the Slightmans are finished in this town. Yes. And they're going to know that it was because of something that Jake discovered and shared with the rest of the gunslingers. And there, therefore, Jake is directly responsible for ruining Benny Sleitman's life. That's the best case scenario. And he keeps telling himself that. And he's so down on himself about this. I sympathize. But he even compares this to Roland's betrayal when he dropped Jake or allowed Jake to fall in under the mountain. Yes. When he in pursuit of the man in black. And he's like, I, and I think what I'm going to do to Benny Sleitman is worse. And when I read that, I said, no, Jake, no, not even close. Not even close. Not even close, buddy. So I wonder, how does that fit in? Like, is, is this king putting more on Jake than he should? Is this Jake just being a kid and not really? But he's the one who was betrayed. He was the one who died and yeah. came back and died again at the because of the betrayal of this person who he thought of as a father and now continues to do so. And it's like, nah, how, did, how do you get your mind wrapped that way? Yeah, I think it's Jake still growing up. Like he's just not mature. I don't know if mature enough's the word or just he still has 
unlike Eddie, who's put his heart behind him, Jake still has his heart. Jake's heart hasn't been smallened. It hasn't. It's still as embiggened as it always has been. And he understands the impact of his actions, whereas perhaps Eddie and Roland do not. Or if they do, they're willing to put that behind him. And I think that that's what makes Jake's a good balance to the rest of this quartet, right? That he still has some of that empathy that they don't have. He's concerned about what his actions are going to mean in the long run. And maybe it's just the fact that he hasn't personally betrayed or hurt anybody before. Yeah. As far as we know, I mean, the closest he's come is purposefully abandoning his parents without so much as a goodbye. Right. And knowingly leaving his home in New York forever, whether it was to walk through a door or or what have you, but he wasn't coming back. But I don't think he liked his parents. And I kind of don't think his parents liked him very much. Yeah. So I don't think he was really broken up about it. No. I think Benny Sleitman is the first person in his life where he's he's actually cared about this person and be the direct instrument of his betrayal. And therefore, it feels like the biggest betrayal ever. Yeah. Because it is for Jake. But it's not the worst betrayal Jake's ever experienced. It's just the worst one he's... Not even close. It's just the worst one he's been an agent of. And uh, so maybe that's what it is. Yeah. It, it's interesting because now, obviously, when King wrote this book, he had not written book 4.5 yet. But looking back at that story that Roland tells in The Wind and Through the Keyhole about the boy whose family is wiped out. Mm-hmm. And Roland protects, and you know he's the one who actually finds the skin man or identifies the skin man, and that boy, his life is ruined as well, right? His whole family's been wiped out. He's not going to have a home to go to, and he eventually becomes a great gunslinger, right? And it it sort of makes you wonder, to your point, and again, we don't know what's going to happen to Benny Slightman or Ben Slightman, but like the best case scenario is they're going to get found out, and. Benny's going to be betrayed in some way and the townspeople are going to know him. And he's really going to have to, at the very least, leave Colibrin Sturgis. And so you wonder how much that would play into that. Just looking at that in a different light now, like, oh, here's an, here's another boy who's been abandoned or here's another boy who's been left alone. It could yep. be enlightening. All right. Well, again, we didn't cover a lot of the huge plot points here, the the Dogen and all of that. We'll see how that all comes together. But I think we hit the main themes of this section and hopefully, maybe finally we'll get to some wolves next time. But in the meantime, we'll have to deal with our own set of fun stuff because obviously King's not given us the fun stuff of the wolves yet. So <laughs> the first thing I notice is, as we've been pointing out since book two, Eddie's literary adventures just continue. Eddie's I'm amazed at Eddie's knowledge of books and authors throughout throughout this uh, this series, and he able to pull out uh, Robert Heinlein's Door into Summer, which is interesting because that's a book about a door that leads into other places, much like the door in the cave that both mm. Eddie and, and Callahan go through. So he's able to pull that out. He's also a big fan of Masterpiece Theater, which I would not have taken Eddie <laughs> to be, but that is where the bomb documentary that he 
talks about the World War II British bomb squad that undid bombs. UBX. UBX, exactly. And so that was shown in America on Masterpiece Theater. So I guess uh, when Eddie was strung out on heroin, he had PBS on. But surprisingly, he doesn't know who Silas Marner is when Calvin Tower mentions him. He's able to pick up the type of character Silas Marner is from the context. But Silas Marner, at least in my growing up, was sort of a mandatory text for 10th graders, but I guess not in Eddie's world. One of the things I, I really liked in this section was the, the shoeshine boy that Father Callahan bumps into near the, the vacant lot where mm. the rose is, is like the most helpful and convenient character ever. <laughs> he basically says, oh, hello there, person I've never met. I'm a person you've never met. Let me fill you in on all the important information you might need in this moment in the plot. Have at it. I think that shoeshine boy, is he named in the in the book? Because I think his name might be uh, Dois Ex Machina. <laughs> he, he's like when you're in Legend of Zelda and you run into somebody and you have to like, you, do you want to talk? And then he just sort of spews out a bunch of plot points that you need to know to advance in the adventure. Mm, yes, the random character exposition technique. <laughs> so in addition to Eddie's literary adventures, I, I noticed perhaps a couple of Stephen King references. So this is the first time I noticed that, even though it's been mentioned earlier in the book, that the wolves come sort of generationally. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows the exact number, 23, 24 years, but the wolves seem to come on a regular basis and terrorize the town. And for some reason, it wasn't until this section that it dawned on me that that's very similar to it in the town of Derry that terrorizes the town on a generational basis of about 20 some years. When you first mentioned that to me, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that that seems like such an obvious connection, a pattern. Then I dialed back my excitement a little bit because like, well, the point here is generations and for it, the monster wants to be there or can only be there, only needs to be there every certain number of years. But for the wolves, if they came every five years, there would never be enough time for more people to be born. Yes. So they probably come as often as they can without... Without totally wiping out the population. Exactly. So another uh, fun stuff item for me was when Oi says moon, just like Tom Cullen in the stand. I don't know why, but that always gives me goosebumps. So when Oi said moon, I that was like a total hair raising experience for me and uh, somehow very satisfying. It's like King spent so much of the stand loading those four letters with so much magic and power that when Tom Cullen finally matched his magic word with the most important task of his life, that it was this moment of joy for me. Tom Cullen is, he's, that was his greatest moment. So when Oi says moon, I just kind of had all those memories come washing back in, and uh, it's it a good moment. Yeah, I noticed it as well. It is, it is a nice moment. The way that the characters use the doorway in the cave to get back to New York City is to use Black 13. And of course, Black 13 is very dangerous, and you know Roland has to sit on the other side of the doorway and plug his ears with bullets and is sort of trembling and shivering and it's causing him great pain throughout. And I thought to myself, it would be nice if there were some sort of controls to set the door to travel. You know, like if there there's like a little LED screen and you could enter in a number and immediately get to that New York City. And I realized there is something that the movie got right. 
the movie of which we must not talk about. Mm. I just wanted to call out a positive of the movie since I'm usually so down about it. But then I realized that movie doesn't exist, so maybe we should just forget what I said. Well, allow me to undercut your positive acclaim to the movie and remind you about how King's design of these doorways, of being these sturdy wooden doors with metal hinges that are attached to nothing mm-hmm. and that disappear as soon as you peer along their edge or from behind them. I love that. That that fantasy aspect to it, the the sheer level of magic required to make this happen and for it to work and work and work again is just wonderful. And the movie didn't do that. It just made some strange I don't know, half-assed keyhole-shaped thing appear in a wall and then disappear again. They could have just made a big, stout wooden door, and I it would have made me, as a fan of the books, very happy to see that. Instead, they made it like a shitty Stargate. You're right. Fuck that movie. <laughs> yeah. Don't go getting soft on the movie, Sean. This brings me back to my point that I think I made back in book two. What's creating these doors? Or who? You say they're the, the amount of magic that must exist to make that happen. Mm. And we're left wondering, is it good magic or is it bad magic? Or is it indifferent? But the fact that they need to use the doorways to accomplish their task of saving the rose and thereby the tower and yet they have to use Black 13, which is obviously evil and bad to do that. It just brings up a whole bunch of world-building questions that I wonder about. Well, maybe someday King will write his version of the Similarian. We'll get all the answers. We'll get all the answers. Roland has no goose for Rosalita when she asks, but he does promise to find her a long-necked gander, and that's just fantastic innuendo yeah roland's working blue again i love it that might not be a double entendre as much as it is just a single entendre <laughs> it there's no subtext it's just text another uh moment that i wanted to call out here is that the title of the book is spoken and of course it's spoken by eddie the great sage and imminent metafiction title maker ever since my fourth grade english teacher said when you hear the title of the book, said in the book, bells should be going off in your head. This is important. I heard Eddie say, not going to be another episode of Wolves of the Caller or something along those lines. And my ding, ding, ding started going off in my head. Like, look at that. Eddie said the name of the book. It would have been a lot cooler if we saw a bunch of dust on the horizon as we heard some gray horses galloping in. And Eddie said, Look, there are the wolves of the Kala. Time for a gunfight. But I guess I'll have to wait till the next section for that. Look, over there, somewhere in the distance, it's the wolves. Which wolves? The wolves of the Kala. (laughs) Jay, we had a, between last episode and this episode, some good call-outs from our friends and listeners via email and social media. And one that I wanted to point out was from Ray, who wrote to us and said that she wanted to disagree that King didn't give very many hints to Susanna's possible pregnancy. And like a good scholar, she 
calls out a couple of citations to mm-hmm. point out that, in fact, King has been foreshadowing it for quite some time. In fact, as early as inside Blaine the Mono, Susanna's left hand slipped across her belly, thinking of the secret which might be growing there. So Blaine the Mono is book three. So that is very shortly uh, thereafter Yep, coming through. And then in book four, Wizard in Glass, as they're leaving the train, her hand went to her stomach and rubbed there as if it ached or griped her. So I know you and I thought that it was probably introduced maybe in book 4.5. As a retcon. Yeah, as a retcon. And maybe it was in four, but we couldn't remember any specific instances. But good work there, Ray, on pointing out a couple of places where King foreshadowed it fairly early to give credence to Roland being able to say that he had known since Lud. Yeah, we definitely missed that that detail. And I'm sure that we noticed that as we were reading, but by the time we got around to deciding what to talk about, it just uh, slipped off of our radar. And now, three books later. Good catch, Ray, and thank you for pointing that out. And thank you for listening and for your email. Yes. Nicholas Krim wrote us a great email and a lot of positive thoughts about our podcast, which we really appreciate. Um, And one of the things that he wanted to talk about that he thought was interesting and probably bears some repeating is that he does believe that Gabrielle's death is Roland's most shameful secret Mm. and that he's buried it so far that he doesn't even ever think about it. And that, in fact, that the difference between her death and Susan's in Roland's head is that he feels guilty about Susan's death but knows he wasn't directly involved. But with Gabrielle, he still feels directly involved. And he feels shame about it, not not guilt. Exactly. And that's why he keeps it hidden and uh, doesn't want to talk about it ever. And I think that that is a, a pretty strong point that Nicholas is making there. Yeah, I think that's a really good read, Nicholas. The question we were asking was, why wasn't Roland agonizing about the death of his mother as much or, as, or more than he agonized about the loss of Susan? And we weren't thinking in terms of the shame angle. And I think that's the key point here. If this is something that Roland is ashamed of, he's not going to wear that on his sleeve the way he wears the the sorrow of the loss of Susan. Yeah. So these are very different emotions and would result in very different motivations for Roland and how he processes them and how he lives with them. Your insight there completely changes how I see a lot of what Roland does and or doesn't do throughout the earlier books. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, it still brings great poignancy to win through the keyhole mm-hmm. when they get to the letter and Gabrielle forgives Roland and he can still feel that forgiveness, but still feel shame. Yeah. He can feel completely absolved of guilt yes. and still be ashamed. Yeah. And of course, the best part of Nick's email, Jay, is he gave us his own uh, CSI Debara. I guess that minor is history. Yeah. <laughs> you will always get a shout out on the podcast if you can make a uh, CSI reference. So thanks for that, Nick. Yeah. Awesome stuff. And uh, speaking of awesome stuff, Ray Ray posted on Facebook. He asked this very uh, important question. What were the color of the horses that the wolves ride again, guys? Did you mention it during the last podcast I listened to? 
were they gray? I think they were gray. Uh, you know what? That's a good point because now that I think about it, I do think the horses might have been gray, Jay. Yeah. I had to think about it for a little while too and go back and reread the section. And Ray Ray is spot on. Those horses were gray. Good. I, I'm glad we've clarified that, that they're gray. The horses are gray. Yes. Gray. Gray horses. Yes. Thank you for the feedback and the excellent question, Ray Ray. So for the last thing that we want to talk about in fun stuff is that when Father Callahan goes back to New York and he tears off a piece of paper from a poster to, so that he can write something down, it is a poster advertising an off-Broadway play called The Dungeon Plunger, a review. And we don't know anything else about this, but I think the plot of it, if I had to write that play, would be a not-so-subtle knockoff of Mario Brothers, <laughs> where we follow the adventures of the mustachioed brothers as they follow a giant green pipe and end up and are trapped in a dungeon, which for some reason is infested by thousands of tiny turtles. <laughs> and every time the light comes on, the turtles scurry off stage. It's guest starring Bob Hoskins for a limited time. Very nice. See, I assumed that this was coming shortly after Glengarry Glen Ross, that this would be some sort of a David Mamet pastiche that took place in a BDSM club where two strangers <laughs> fall in love after bonding over a strange kink involving plumbing equipment. Mm, that is a strange kink. <laughs> but I do like the Mario Brothers. I think that that's a, a very strong possibility. Nintendo is coming, coming up around that time. So I think either one of those could be a possible plot for the Dungeon Plunger. If you, dear listener, have any idea what the Dungeon Plunger could possibly be about, we would love to hear your potential plot for the Dungeon Plunger. Yes, please send those in, post them on Facebook, send us emails, any way you want to reach out to us. Uh, we would love to hear your version of the plot of the Dungeon Plunger, a review. All right. Well, that is all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at Two Guys Dark Tower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Two Guys Dark Tower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Two Guys Dark Tower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we finish our reading of Book 5 of the Dark Tower, Wolves of the Call-Up, Part 3, The Wolves, Chapters 5 through 7, and the Epilogue. I am guessing, Jay that we will see the wolves in this section. That's moderately fascinating. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Sauerkraut every single morning.